Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Marissa Silver, author of the novel, The Mysteries. You know, in as much as death is a closure of some kind, it really is an opening for, of, of how we think about everything. We'll be back with Marissa Silver in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. 
and there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Marissa Silver, author of two short story collections and five novels, including Mary Coyne, Little Nothing, and most recently, The Mysteries. Silver's novels have been selected as New York Times Editor's Choice, NPR, Los Angeles Times, and BBC Best Book of the Year, and have been New York Times bestsellers. Her short fiction has won the O. Henry Prize and has appeared in The New Yorker, TheAtlantic.com, and The Best American Short Stories, among other publications and anthologies. Silver teaches at the MFA Program for Writers at Warren Wilson College. Her new novel, The Mysteries, tells the story of Miggy Brenneman, a wild and reckless seven-year-old with a fierce imagination growing up in 1970s St. Louis. Her best friend, Ellen, is polite, cautious, and drawn to Miggy's energy. Meanwhile, the adults around them are grappling with their own family histories, the unstable political environment of the United States, and the changing economics of small-town America. Suddenly, a tragedy strikes that impacts Ellen's and Miggy's families and changes the present landscape of their relationships and worldviews and will forever transform their futures. We began the interview with Marissa Silver sharing the inciting incident for the creation of the story. Well, the inciting incident actually came not from my imagination, but from reality. What happens in the novel, the sort of central event, and we won't do spoilers, was something that in another form happened to my father when he was a little boy. And um, it was something that he had told me kind of in passing, even though it's an incredibly dramatic and, and traumatic event. And then I, he never told me about it again. He never filled out the story. He never described what the aftermath of it was, what happened to the various people who were involved. And it was just kind of one of the many stories that you know you hear from your parents about their childhood. It wasn't something I ever bothered to ask him about. And then he passed away about eight years ago. And one thing I've experienced a lot around that is just how little you ultimately know about your parents, right? You you have an intense knowledge of them as parents in terms of being a child, but you only know drips and drabs about their life and no one has access to anybody else's emotions in the same way that you have to your own. And so I think I started thinking about that and thinking about, well, why did he tell me? And what did it mean to him? He was a guy who was kind of quiet about his emotional life. And so I began to sort of imagine what it might, not what it might have been, but imagine a story around those things, sort of to answer the questions that were never, not only not asked, but not answered. So it came, it stemmed from there, but then the imagination took over and then it became just a completely imagined story. Not about my father, obviously, but about this little girl named Mickey Brenneman, who's seven years old. Your main character is Mickey and she is a little seven-year-old girl. 
And I'm curious about, well, first of all, you said this happened to your dad. So you, in your imagination, you changed it to a little girl and you got so deep inside of her head. And I was curious about your, I mean, obviously you were a little girl, but I know, I believe you've raised sons. So I'm curious about getting into the head of a little girl and, and how you picked the age of seven. Well, I picked the age of seven in this kind of very intuitive way because six felt too young and eight felt too old in some weird maturational way, which I can't really describe. And I don't, I'm, I mean, I, I did read about the psychology of, you know, kids at different ages, but it really was more the sense of, you know, how much can she know and understand and how much can she come to know and understand in the course of, an, of a year, which is the, the novel takes place over a year. And it just felt like that was an age at which she could have some grasp of or some kind of personal idea about the way the world works that she holds fast to. And it was also a year in which she could, the, the kind of blinders could come off to some degree. And, and yet she would still not have an enormous amount of perspective, but something would change. And, and you know, the, the book is really about um, her. It's about a group of people who are dealing with the, this this tragedy that happens, but it's primarily about her and how she her her the terms of her life, the terms of how she understands the world to be shift as a result, and what it takes for her to make that shift. So seven just felt like intuitively the right place where she was. I mean, nine just felt like way too old, like way too savvy, right? And and six felt quite little. Um, the other thing is when, and and I want to talk about this a little bit later when I read from the book, but, you know, trying to find the sweet spot of when you have a character who can't be sophisticated, but can have her own developed ideas about things. I wanted to find the spot where she, she wasn't someone who could speak with a, any perspective or sort of any worldly knowledge, but she could, but she was certainly sophisticated enough to create her own version of the way the world works. And and in terms of getting inside, I mean, the trick of this book, as I wrote it over the years that I wrote it, became very clear to me, which was that it all had to do with how deeply I could get to know these characters. There wasn't, you know, there's there's a turning point in the book, but there's not a kind of crazy plot that churns through the novel. It's really a function of how deeply we can connect to the characters as they're experiencing what they experience. And, and with Mickey, I guess I just felt her, you know, she came to me really quickly and she, I felt her kind of unruly, frustrated, knocking against the walls of her world, um, not able to change anything because she doesn't have any agency and yet having this kind of desire to control the way things are. And I just knew her and I knew these kind of incandescent kids who are incredibly um, charismatic and they are also sometimes um, their charisma is also dangerous. That's who she was. That's who she is. And I was interested in writing that kid. I mean, I wasn't interested in writing about the innocence of childhood. I was kind of interested in writing about something more, not darker, but more complex about what it is to be a kid. You know, one of the things that struck me about this book, I mean, you're, you were saying that she wasn't innocent, but she is living in a period of innocence, meaning 
that is childhood in, in, in some of those senses, no matter how precocious you are. And the book to me was about not necessarily a loss of innocence, but kind of this understanding that the world is so much more complex than you think it is. I agree with that. I mean, she's, she's innocent as a child is. She's certainly not a soft child. She's a, she's a, you know, a rabble rouser, a fighter, a kind of kinetic kid who's constantly in motion and constantly looking for like the main chance. I guess the innocence is just in, as you say, it's in the kind of not understanding the complications and that this is a, a story about a girl who's confronted with a moment where it is impossible for her to maintain that kind of um, innocence and where she has to, in her own seven-year-old way, come to a new understanding about some of the really big questions and the big mysteries of life, um, primarily death. So, um, yeah, I think, but I, I don't really think of children as being innocent. I don't know what innocence means. I mean, children have knowledge, right? They have, um, they have their own set of knowledge and they have, um, I think, incredibly complicated emotional lives that sometimes we try to tame because that, that can be really hard to deal with. But I think that, um, I guess my approach to Miggy was to sort of take her as, a, as, as complicated a person as any adult and to try to get inside what, it, what those complications are for, were for her. Can you, I, I think it might be nice to ground the listener a little bit in Miggy's voice. Um, and even though this is quite omniscient, I'm wondering if you would read um, a little bit from page six. But even when Miggy tries as hard as she can to stand still, something inside her sparks like the telephone wire that whipped across the street during last winter's ice storm, spitting electricity into the frigid air. She bursts with the desire to move, to speak, to sing, because there is so much. There is so much all the time that even if she could spread her arms wider than the universe, she still could not hold it all. There are the mosquito bites that she is not supposed to scratch. There are starbursts of blood on her arms and shins because she can't help it. There is knowing what she is supposed to do and not doing it and knowing how she is supposed to behave and misbehaving. It makes her skin prickle. It makes her choose a great popsicle, but then wish she chosen red so that her lips would be painted in defiance of her mother, who says that makeup is not for children. Her rage at the injustice overcomes her. She is mad at the popsicles and mad at her mother, who always says, choose one. But how and why? And so much is capitalized. And and I think what you captured in here of the of the so muchness is almost like in a way she is like her attitude towards life is kind of like orange juice, frozen concentrate orange juice that she hasn't like you haven't added water yet to distill everything. And so she's seeing everything with so intensity and she she can't quite see like when you add water that that it becomes even more of herself. Does that make sense to you? It does. It's, it's a great analogy. <laughs> or she's concentrating. Nothing I ever would have thought of it. It makes so much sense. She is like a concentrate she she is everything at fever pitch and she doesn't know how to um sort of soften any of that and she also loves the energy of the fever pitch it's what compels her and where another child might 
seek a kind of calm middle ground because those emotions might be too difficult for them to manage. I think Miggy goes right towards the center of emotions. She, she wants and she wants to feel and she wants to taste and she wants to smell and she wants to control and she wants attention and she wants all those things. And it makes her this really intense, kinetic, alive sparking kid and then you feel like okay well what does she feel inside being that kid she feels like this kind of royal right this 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 energy that is some is sort of uncontainable what does she do with it and sometimes she does wonderfully creative things with it and sometimes she does really destructive things with it so the story centers around Mickey. She is the the nucleus, the epicenter. And then it also goes into the life of her two parents, Jean and Julian, um, and her friend Ellen and her parents, Celeste and William. You, you both stand at a distance from everybody, but also get really deep into their experiences. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about that. But first, just to set it up a little bit more. So Mickey is friends with Ellen. Her mother teaches ballet, and that's how they met at ballet class. And they are the same age, but Miggy is definitely the dominant of the two in the friendship. Her mother, Jean, and her father, Julian, met when they were young and married early and were very idealistic. And Julian... He inherited a store from his father, a hardware store, and there's hard times going on. This is taking place in St. Louis, and it's 1973. And then on the other side, you have Celeste, who has has had a difficult childhood. Her mom committed suicide, and she was left alone a lot. And she is had Ellen with um, a man she wasn't married to and then married this this man, William, who loves her so much and is very successful financially. So you have these these two families just juxtaposed against each other. I said it in 1973 because for a number of reasons. I wanted to write the story before such things as cell phones and um, texting and all that because I felt like the drama of the story actually wouldn't happen in that way. But more importantly, 1973 felt like a really, it was a really interesting year and set of years um, in terms of what was going on in the country. You know, Vietnam was coming to its kind of hobbling, frustrating end. Uh, Watergate was happening. Um, There was a a recession that uh, that was going to, was starting to happen in that year. Um, And it was sort of a, I don't know, I think of it as kind of like a, a time of malaise, a time of a certain kind of reckoning, reckoning, you know, where, where things were not great. It feels like a gray time. My memory of that time I was alive then was uh, a kind of grayness, you know, and it felt that's a really interesting time to me because there was a lot of um, dashed hopes and dashed um, ideals. And certainly Miggy's parents who, you know, were children in the six. uh, in college in the 60s and had some of the idealism of, of, of those times have, um, because of circumstance, not followed through on some of those, um, their, their loftier ideas of who they might have been and have um, come back and, and, and are living a more conventional life than they thought they might have been living. And so there's a sense of kind of a, an uncomfortable reckon, reckoning that's going on in the world with this family so already they're they're at a, like a tipping point. So that always is an interesting time to to 
tell a story, you know, with the, with the backdrop is shifting. The, and then St. Louis is a city that I, um, I mean, I knew the story would be set in the Midwest just because it's where I was a child. And, and so I suppose it's where I sort of imagine childhood. Um, and I was a child in Cleveland, Ohio, um, but I have spent an enormous amount of time in St. Louis because it's where my husband is from. And it's a city that is just over the years really compelled me and fascinated me. And I, I sort of, I love it. And I find it very heartbreaking and sort of hopeful in, in equal measure. And, um, and especially then. So I, 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 the city and the time seem to somehow be matched for me. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think another interesting part about that is that you're also on the cusp of change, at least in, where Julian's hardware store is. Bigger malls and developments are coming in, new housing developments. So there's there's like an economic shift and sort of a consumer desire for something newer that is an important element of the story. St. Louis is a city that um, ha- had a lot of social upheaval and a lot of economic upheaval. And um, it, it was only probably even later than the story takes place that it began to you know, reestablish itself in that way. So I think that it was interesting to, to set the story at a time when um, there was a lot of economic uh, kind of uncertainty. And um, so this family that is going through a, a personal upheaval is also beset with a kind of economic uncertainty that makes things even more stressful for them. And then the world, you know, you turn on the TV and what do you see? You see, you know, the Watergate hearings or you see the war not quite ending. And, and you know, so this is a family that allows their child to be aware of what's going on in the world. They keep the television on. They watch the news with her there. So she develops a lot of um, wrongheaded ideas about what's going on in the world. And um, that becomes a function of, of function of a factor in the story. And, you know, for a child to be hearing about, you know, that the president is going to be, you know, kicked out or that he's a bad man, right? Um, Those are kind of fundamental uh, discombobulations for a kid when you're raised to think that, you know, the president is kind of like God and, and, you know, all those. uh, So it was interesting to me to think about how Mickey would be sorting through all this, um, in her own little seven-year-old way and how that would impact the story. And how about your, your point of view that you took? Because you, you move around between so many people. I mean, it's clear that Miggy is the center, but you, you explore many different mind frames. 
liked what I decided early on was that it couldn't just be Mickey's story because she's not in charge of her story. I, I wanted to show the lives that were in charge of Mickey, right? And so I chose a kind of narrative stance. I love that we're talking all geeky writing stuff, my favorite, um, that, that sort of was very flexible, that would be both, as you said, could sort of survey the scene in an omniscient manner, but also then telescope right down into the heart of character. And I wanted to do that in a really fluid way. Like I, I didn't want it to be one chapter for one person, one chapter for the next person. I wanted to have a sense of fluidity that the camera, as it were, which is the narrative you know, stance, was kind of always shifting depending on where it needed to be um, and, and what it needed to let us in on. It's the first book I've actually ever written that way. I loved it. I lo- it was thrilling to be able to sort of, you know, move, move, be so deep inside somebody and then zoom back out and suddenly you're seeing the, you know, the much broader world. And it also gave me um, a way of writing children because it's very hard to choose a, a, a close interiority with a child and still have the ability to, um, first of all, use a kind of sophisticated language and lyric images um, that they might not use, right? And then also to be able to have some perspective, to be able to put their lives into a, a, a context. And I, and I, you know, I tried different versions of this as I was beginning the book. I finally settled on this kind of flexible, telescopic um, narrative stance so that I could both be inside Miggy and be very close to her perspective and what she thinks about the world and how much, you know, what I read, the so muchness of it. But then be able to back up and 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 sort of have a slightly more ironic distance, and it was it, that that sort of ended up being the way that I was able to both express her life and also express the wider world that she lived in. And did you make that decision before you even started writing, or were you kind of playing around on the page when you then discovered or tried that out? I, I discovered it only by writing. I almost never make any decision like in abstract abstractly, which it's, it's all through the writing, but, um, no, I tried it a million different ways. I tried it first person, third person, present tense, past tense, distance. I tried so many, like, I mean, I have, you know, seven or eight different ways this book began. Um, and then I finally landed on this, this particular tonal idea, um, that seemed to be able to offer me all the colors that I needed to paint in this portrait. And what I mostly wanted to do was be able to express the kind of, you know, bodily unruliness of Miggy. Um, but I didn't want to do it, you know, at the expense of having any kind of ironic distance. And present tense probably helped with that, what you were saying earlier, that that kinetic compressed energy. Yeah. You know, with the past tense for me, when I was writing this, it always seemed to sort of put her at a distance, um, even if it was in the first person. And the first person past tense, with that, then if it was a reflective, you know, stance, then that seemed to really distance her. And I didn't want to see her from afar. I wanted to be right inside her skin. I didn't want it to be adult Mickey thinking back on her life and this thing that happened to her, because that already mitigated the power of it. You know, it kind of, it kind of lessened it. It made it something that, that was remembered um, without the kind of intensity of, of having it being lived through. The astuteness of your seven-year-old mind 
is so is so clear. Like for example, in the very beginning, um, on chapter three, you're talking about what it's like to go to different friends' houses. Like she's talking about what it's like at Ellen's house that there is a quiet and unattended furniture in the living room where the carpet is vacuumed into perfect semicircles. And she's talking about the China. And it brought me so back to like going to my friends, different friends' houses and remembering the smells and who had cats and whose kitchen I felt comfortable in. And I'm just curious about how you accessed this seven-year-old mind frame and if it was just trial and error on the page or if you read comic books. I don't know. You know, I think it's just, I, I kind of felt like I knew I had her and I had what she would be looking at and what she would be noticing and how it would affect her. But what you say about being a child, I mean, going to your friend's houses was like traveling to different countries, right? And you were not with your parents usually. So that was this whole other experience where you were having to understand the codes and rules of another person's house without your parent mitigating it or, or explaining it to you or, you know, helping you through it. And so I have these as you clearly do, these very visceral memories of, of what that was like and what that feel, and also being around people's parents, being around people's fathers. That was really, you know, um, I mean, I grew up in a house full of women, so that was particularly powerful to me. Um, so I think I just kind of knew Miggy right away and I knew what would affect her and I knew how she would react to things and I knew um, what she would see, you know, so much of how, I define characters on the page is by what they notice. Um, and people would notice different things. You know, you walk into a room and you ask three people what they notice and they might all say something very different. And that will have a lot to do with who they are and what their perspective is and what matters to them, what they fear, what their curiosities are. So I feel like I just kind of was, I, I was, it was very easy to slip into her skin. She was the easiest one for me um, to, who's, to slip inside of and know exactly what she would notice and what she would do with that. Through the book, we we meet Miggy, and then this tragedy happened that is involves a death of someone, and that is something that Miggy can't really conceive of. She doesn't understand death. She keeps asking if she can see this dead person again. It's like she grasps it, and she doesn't grasp it at the same time. And I just wanted to ask you about this because it's it's more than that. It is. I mean, I said I know you said you don't believe in in this concept of innocence because kids are so wise, but it is gaining an understanding of, of the world that you don't have before you experience death as a witness. I don't think kids are necessarily wise. I just think that they're complicated and they are, you know, there, there's a lot of darker folds inside their, their minds. Yeah. I think that, you know, the death is the big, there's many, many things that Mickey comes to understand and during the course of the story about relationships and marriages and all sorts of things, but death is the big one. And I think that um, who can understand death? I think adults don't have such an easy time understanding it. I think that that kind of finality is, you know, I, I've not fully grasped it. So I think that um, for Miggy, it, even less so. I remember so clearly when I was a younger mother and my kid was like I don't know two or something we took a walk around a duck pond and the my son saw this duck lying in the middle of the pond and clearly the duck was dead and he said what's going on with that duck right and I said oh the duck is sleeping the duck is having a little you know I was so sure that I couldn't 
um, you know, lay it on him at age two. And, and then he said, but, and he kept asking me and asking me, asking me, and, and clearly he knew, right? He may not. And, and so I said, the duck died. And, and the look on his face was interesting because it wasn't understanding. It was just sort of like, this is a journey I'm now going to start to take. I mean, he was only two, obviously that's a little bit sophisticated, but it wasn't a sense of closure on his face. It was a sense of openness. And, and I think that that is what Miggy experiences is that, you know, in as much as death is a closure of some kind, it really is an opening of, of how we think about everything. So even for seven-year-old Miggy, I think that that happens. I think that she, um, that that's the, that's the journey she takes throughout the book is trying to wrap her mind around, not the end, but the beginning of a new awareness how you accept maybe death and if you fight against it or if it finally just gets absorbed in your being will will change how you how you move forward if that makes sense like if you if you're fighting against it it might change you in a really significant way where there's a lot of struggle and there's a, a different sort of acceptance where it still changes you but you're not struggling so much and that's a smaller shift yeah, I agree. I think so. And I think also not only does she come to some reckoning with the idea of absence, but it changes a lot of other things in her life. I mean, her by, at the end of the book, what she recognizes not to be true that she thought was true has to do with a lot of things beyond death. It has to do with many, many ideas of what her world was based on. And I think that that's what happens to her is it's not only that she has to reckon with death, but she reckons with ideas of what the boundaries of her world are and, and how, you know, what happens in marriages and, you know, what happens when your parents aren't there. And, you know, so the, there's a lot of shifts in perspective for her that have that are sort of ripple effects of that larger one. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of prosaic moments that can change a, a seven year old's life in a way they wouldn't change ours. For example, if it's okay to say they, they had puppies, they, they had a dog that was really important in the book. Um, her name was Susie and she was pregnant throughout most of the book. And then she had puppies and the, the father goes to, to give them away. And Miggy sort of astounded because she didn't get to meet them. And, and he says to her, like, regarding who takes the puppies, like you have no idea who people turn out to be. Like you might meet them at, at the grocery store and think they're really nice, but that doesn't mean anything. And, and that was a prosaic moment for me as a reader where I think her eyes just could get so wide from that to realize something like that, that people aren't necessarily who they, they seem to be. And that isn't a big moment. It doesn't take a lot of drama for that kind of change that's growing up, right? This kind of successive unpeeling of, of things that you thought were true. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the book is called the mysteries plural for a reason, you know, it's about a lot of them, not just one. Something else that I took out of the book was that you never know who and how people will survive tragedy. Like you might think, okay, so-and-so died. So the person closest to them will not be the one to survive or, but it's not, it's not like that. And I'm wondering if you were thinking about this idea 
Yeah, I think a lot about it. I mean, I think about about how people overcome or I mean, overcome is even the wrong word. I think we have this kind of obsession with overcoming and closure and, you know, um, how people re- react. And I don't know, whenever I, I open up a newspaper, which is just, you know, one tragedy after the next, and you just think, okay, m- most people go on in the face of it in one way or another, right? I mean, things change radically, but most people don't you know, kill themselves because someone close to them died. You know, there's this urge to continue on. There's an urge to keep living. There's an urge. And and part of, I guess, the human experience is that you you just fold all that stuff in and it forms who you are going forward. And it maybe makes you, it could change you in any number of ways. It could, could you know, make you more fragile, it could make you stronger, it could make you more empathic, it could make you harsher. But I think most, you know, most people go on and and the going on is what interests me. I think family legacy was also interesting. Like, what do you inherit? What do you what do you pass down? You have you have a line in there that says you are always and only reacting to family, but it's more than that line. It's embedded in the story. But I wanted to ask you about that. You know, I I think that I in my life I've been sort of both accepting of the fact that family legacy is such a determinant in who we are, and also f- frustrated by the kind of causal obviousness of it, you know, and it's, and when I write, I sometimes feel like, God, do, do people have to be a function of how they were raised or their past history? Or is that like necessary? Can we be sui generis and just, you know, exist regardless of that? And I think that that's something I struggle with as I write. I mean, something I want to explore as I write is the question of how much of who we are is defined by where we come from and how much of it, of who we are is defined by us, you know, in this moment going forward. I mean, the Freudians would say none of it, right? That, that it's all all related to the past. And I don't know whether I agree. I don't think I agree with that. I think it's a combination of two things, but I don't, but I do think that family is for better or for worse. It is the kind of the foundation we grow out of. It's the, it's the people whom we most define ourselves either a, pro or against it's the tree you know it's that it's that what was that that children's book the giving tree or something yeah you know that that's the one that's just there right and you're you're either getting shade from it or you're hitting it or you're you know you're saying i don't want to be anything like that or i am like that and i'm proud of it and i you know so i i think that for me it's a constant source of question it's not something that i i have a kind of black and white idea about. So I guess I'm, when I write, I'm always sort of struggling with how much of who we are is based on where we come from and how much of it is not. And she has so many private things going on that her parents don't know. It's like they, they're challenged by her, but they don't even know the half of it, which as a writer is, (laughs) is, is something that must be very interesting to modulate. And also, you know, she, she, uh, an element of her is, is fear is fear of the woods, is fear of a monster, is fear um, that we all have that can stand in for so much. I don't know if you want to say anything about that element. Yeah, you know, she's someone who sort of approaches the world with her fist raised in front of her. But the truth is, as is true for so many people like that, she's terrified. And she doesn't, there's a lot of, you know, she has she has some understanding of the true things that happen in the world. And then she also has this wild fantasy life that is completely childlike where she believes that a monster lives in the woods and might kill her every night. And it's not something that her parents know. It's something she's kept private from them. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that's the other thing, you know, going back to the very beginning of this conversation about why seven, because seven is a time when you can both, you can have both those things going on at once. You can believe in a monster in the woods and you can also understand that, you know, the president is a bad man and he's gonna, you know, he, he's not God. So it's like, there, there's to be able to capture a child who could hold both those things at the same time is um, that was a fun and interesting place to be as a writer. You had mentioned that you you tried so many things. You tried first person, you know, you tried past tense, you, you went through so many things. I'm wondering how long did it take you to write this? And was there an ever a moment where you were ready to toss it out the window? It took me all in all about four years, which is kind of longer than any other book I've written, which all kind of mystified me the whole time I was writing it because it seemed like on some level, such a simple book, like to construct other books that I've written seem to me way more complicated. But I think going back to what I said earlier about it, there not being kind of these plot, a series of plot points made it harder. And also, you know, when you take on something that has this kind of very dramatic thing that happens in the center, then it becomes about how do you modulate that so that it's not, you know, I didn't want to write a soap opera. I wanted to write something, a, a book about, you know, the reality of these people's lives um, into which something, you know, really traumatic happens. So it took me a long time just to find the, the tone of it and the way that the book would work. I, I, I couldn't explain it to myself when I was working on it. And I, I can't really explain now why, why it was hard, but it was really hard. And were there times when I wanted to give it up? As with every book, um, there's always times where, you know, I mean, you, I hit a wall and I just think, okay, this isn't interesting. Nobody cares. And I, I can't figure it out. And therefore it must not work because I can't figure it out. I mean, if I can't figure it out, that must be the clue, right? I think all writers have that, that feeling at some point. Um, and the thing that kept me going and always keeps me going is, um, well, for, in this book, it was Miggy. Like I kept thinking, but I can't let her go. Like there's something about her. I have to figure out how to write this story. I have to figure out how to do it. And so the experience of writing it was, you know, you know, I'd write for a while and then I'd hit a wall and then I'd back up and I'd redirect and I'd go forward again in another direction. And I'd hit a wall and I'd back up and it was, it was um, <clears throat> kind of endless. And, but, and, and I guess part of it was just trying to find the building blocks, the little pieces that would go together that would create the arc of this tiny little, I mean, a large thing happens, but this tiny recognition, right, on her part, this very small shift of, of perspective. Um, so yeah, it was really hard. And, and I, I, you know, every time I start a book, I think this is going to be the one that rolls off the page, but you know, no. <laughs> Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Uh, sure. I'm going to read something from one of my favorite books by one of my favorite writers, Paula Fox, and it's the opening of Desperate Characters. Um, so I'm gonna read you the, the kind of first whatever of it. Mr. and Mrs. Otto Bentwood drew out their chairs simultaneously. As he sat down, Otto regarded the straw basket which held slices of French bread, an earthenware casserole filled with sauteed chicken livers, peeled and sliced tomatoes on an oval willowware plate Sophie had found in a Brooklyn Heights antique shop, and risotto milanaise in a green ceramic bowl. A strong light, somewhat softened by the stained glass of a Tiffany shade, fell upon this repast. A few feet away from the dining room table, an oblong of white, of white 
reflection from a fluorescent tube over a stainless steel sink lay upon the floor in front of the entrance to the kitchen. The old sliding doors that had once separated the two first floor rooms had long since been removed so that by turning slightly, the Bentwoods could glance down the length of their living room where at this hour, a standing lamp with a shade like half a white sphere was always lit. And they could, if they chose, view the old cedar planks of the floor, a bookcase which held, among other volumes, the complete works of Goethe and two shelves of French poets and highly polished corner of a Victorian secretary. Otto unfolded a large linen napkin with deliberation. The cat is back, Sophie said. Are you surprised, Otto asked. What did you expect? Sophie looked beyond Otto's shoulder at the glass door that opened onto a small wooden stoop suspended above the backyard like a crow's nest. The cat was rubbing its scruffy, half-starved body against the base of the door with soft insistence. Its gray fur, the gray of tree fungus, was faintly striped. Its head was massive, a pumpkin jowled and unprincipled and grotesque. And tell me why you chose that. The reason I chose it is because I think it's such a brilliant opening because it begins almost like a Edith Wharton novel, you know, with all the this this omniscience that tells you about all the, the dishes and the, it sounds very lovely and, and kind of restrained and you get a portrait of a very well-off uh, home and these people who are sitting down to dinner to have this very, you know, the word repast is used, which is such an antique word. And so it starts out, and then there's this sudden shift in the opening where suddenly we're talking about a cat that's grotesque and jowly and and has a pumpkin head. And it I, as an opening, it's just sort of brilliant to me because it it it, it changes your perspective on what's going to happen in this book instantly. And it also and, and yet it's not a sleight of hand because this is both about a couple that lives this very lovely, well-heeled life, but there's going to be a lot of darkness that under that undercuts this life. And it starts out when this cat bites the woman's hand. And um, that is the inciting incident after which everything in their world begins to fall apart. And so I think it's just a sort of gorgeous use of a shift in tone um, that that tells you that there's going to be two levels of this this world that you're going to see. You're going to see this superficial loveliness and stasis, and then you're going to see what's going to come underneath and begin to to you know make it crumble. And I just love that. I mean, the whole novel is fantastic, but the 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 opening is just I think brilliant. And also the whole idea of basing a novel on this. You know, she gets bitten by a cat, and then the novel and that's all. That's what the novel takes off from. It's such a brilliant conceit. So simple, so unexpected, and um, everything follows from there. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. One of the things I always, I really wanted to get a sense of the place where the novel was set, which is St. Louis, but it's always a challenge to talk about place in a way that isn't simply descriptive or informational, but that has emotional value and resonance for the subtext. So I tried it in a lot of different ways to talk about St. Louis and felt it was just kind of, again, informational or like a city, you know, guide to the city. But then I realized that I could sort of match a description of the city both to Julian and to Miggy's experience of it and that that was the way in. And so I'm going to read a paragraph where um, that takes place when Julian, Miggy's father, is driving in his truck. Julian drives past the shuttered factories, their blown out windows, portals to dark nowheres. As he nears the river, the smell of the brewery fills the cab of his truck, the cloyingly sweet odor of the yeast, the sour turn of the wort, 
For a time, his father's wholesale supplier did business down on the riverfront. The steamboats docking at levees filled Julian with excitement. All the suppliers have moved out to the highway bay by now, and the warehouses that are left strung out along the landings are long past their relevance. The Mississippi is still high from last spring's flood. Miggy worried about the river overrunning its banks. She talked about it incessantly, certain that the family would drown in their sleep. He and Jean weren't able to make her understand their home, 10 miles inland, was not threatened. But she couldn't grasp 10 minutes, much less 10 miles. When it was safe, Julian took her down to the river to allay her fear. Both of them stood in, the, in quiet awe of the storm's consequence, the light poles halfway submerged and the young trees so nearly drowned that only their tips poked up above the surface of the water along with the cab of a red truck. Do you want to say anything else about that? No, it's just I often think, uh, you know, again, you know, how do you bring in a world without feeling like just exposition, you know? And I guess what I always come to is that it has to be the character's experience of that world. It can't be that world kind of from a generalized point of view, or at least for me. I don't want to make pronouncements about the way other people work. But for me, if the if the a character's experience of place we talked a little bit before about noticing and how, you know, someone walks into a room and notices something that another person doesn't. Well, a character's experience of place is just as indicative of who they are. And so Julian noticing sort of the, the ghost-like quality of, of the post-industrial Saint decline that, that, that um, overran so many cities, including St. Louis, is his, sort of speaks to where his heart is, right? There's a kind of a sense of loss for him in this story, a sense of mourning. And for Miggy, you know, again, she thinks that, you know, if there's a flood in the river, she's going to drown in her sleep. I mean, that, that's very much her point of view on hearing that news. So I, I guess for me, it was a challenge of trying to find a way to talk about a place that would tell us about character. Where do you write? I write in my bedroom. I have a desk in my bedroom and I write with my back to my bed. Otherwise, it would be just too alluring to lie down and read. <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, that's I was thinking about that question, and I realized that when I'm in the middle of working, I don't ever really get away from writing because writing happens when I'm thinking, and it happens when I'm grocery shopping, and it happens when I'm doing anything because I feel like it's kind of becomes the lens through which I experience my life, which isn't to say that it's claustrophobic or negative, but I just feel like, I mean, I feel like that's one of the fun things about writing is that once I'm into a project, everything in my world feeds that, you know, from the smallest inconsequential banality to, you know, suddenly having an idea for a story point. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my husband first, which is kind of a cheat because, you know, my husband is going to be a great cheerleader for me, but I also trust him and trust his aesthetic sense and also his story sense. And I would say that with each book, there's a different friend or two who I share pages with. It's never the same person. I think just by happenstance, whoever's kind of in my life at that moment, who seems like they want to share and they want to be part of that. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I think I deal with it by feeling like, you know, I feel bad and then I get up and then I move on. You know, I allow myself to feel bad for a day or two or whatever. And then I sort of pick myself up and I think, okay, but this is what I want to do. And I'm going to continue to do it. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard. It's a hard, of course, you want to be accepted or read or all those things. But at the same time, you can't write for those reasons. 
So I feel like there's this kind of game you have to play a little bit where um, as much as you want those things, they cannot be the determinant about whether or not you move forward with your work. So, you know, I let myself wallow for a little bit and then I say, well, I want to write this or I want to do this or I want to try again or whatever. And I do. And what is your favorite word? Serene. <laughs> which is not a feeling that I've had all year and many of us have not had, but it's sort of something to aspire to, serenity. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love talking to you and thank you for reading so beautifully and for asking such wonderful questions about the book. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Marissa Silver, author of the novel, The Mysteries. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See, a novel whose main character is a 12-year-old blind girl surviving World War II. Our discussion centers around wonder and mystery, science, and the sentence level in writing. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.